you could turn in your Bibles to Mark 8. We're going to be looking at most of the chapter, Mark 8, 1 to 26. I'm going to be sort of reading it as we go along, but I think it's really good you kind of read along in your own Bibles or versions or whatever, so you kind of, you know, follow as closely as possible. Now, last week, we read of Jesus going to the areas of Tyre and Sidon, now in southern Lebanon, and healing the daughter of a Greek Syrophoenician woman. Okay, I'm saying that in a deliberately derogatory way for effect. In Matthew's Gospel, he calls her a Canaanite. I think that's even worse than a Greek or a Syrophoenician. So this person was Greek, Syrophoenician, Canaanite, and a woman. And for a first century Jew, that said it all. The term, the derogatory term was dog, unclean animal. And it's shocking to read, and I'm going back to Mark 7, verse 27. And he, this is Jesus, said to her, let the children be satisfied first, that's the Jews, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And if we continue reading, I, mean we, I know we saw this last week, but it's so amazing, I'm going back to it, and I want to kind of attach what we're going to read today onto this woman's faithful story. But she answered and said to him, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, because of this statement, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And when she went to her home, she found the child lying on the bed and the demon gone. So this is from the end of Mark 7, the previous chapter. So this dog, so-called, has faith. But the children of Abraham, the children of Yahweh himself, Jesus' own family, the scribes that came to Jesus are filled with varying degrees of unbelief. And a little question I hope we will kind of answer without sort of even having to answer it as it were is did Jesus really call this woman a dog? Or was Jesus just picking up on the attitude of the unbelief of his fellow Jews? Because I think we're going to see in chapter 8, Jesus' utter love for the Gentiles around him. And in chapter 8, the first evidence we see of Jesus' love for Gentiles, people who are not Jews, 
is this feeding of the 4,000. So I'm going to read the first 10 verses from Mark 8. In those days, there was again a large crowd, and they did not have anything they could eat. Summoning the disciples, he said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have remained with me three days already and do not have anything to eat. And if I send them away hungry to their homes, they will give out on the way. And some of them have come from far away. And his disciples answered him, where is anyone able to feed these people with bread here in the desert? And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? So they said, seven. And he commanded the crowd to recline for a meal on the ground. And taking the seven loaves, after he had given thanks, he broke them and began to give them to his disciples so that they could set them before them. And they set them before the crowd, and they had a few small fish. And after giving thanks for them, he, that's Jesus, said to, said to, sorry, he said to set these before them also, the fish. I read it badly, sorry. And they ate and were satisfied, and they picked up the broken pieces that were left, seven baskets full. Now there were about four and he sent them away and immediately he got into the boat and went to the district of Dalman Utha. Now there are two mass feedings of crowds in Mark's gospel. There's the feeding of the 5,000 back in chapter 6 who were Jewish, and in chapter 8, he is in a Gentile area, and now he feeds 4,000 Gentiles. But we notice back in chapter 6 that when they count, they count men. So a man has a wife, perhaps two, and maybe more than two, I don't know, and family so the numbers you multiply them by three four five six I, i'm not sure how we can know but these are huge huge numbers and if you go back to chapter six beginning at verse 34 and you compare the accounts are almost the same 634 it's a large crowd 81 it's a large crowd. In, chap in chapter 6, Jesus has compassion on them. In Mark 8, verse 2, he has compassion on the crowd. In both cases, they use bread and fish. Well, this is because the disciples were mainly fishermen. So when they're on the road or whatever, they'd have the bread, which is a staple. Yep. And some fish or whatever in both cases they get caught out 
because they haven't really organized the event. There isn't sufficient bread. In both cases, they are in remote or deserted places. There are no kind of shops open you can go to and get bread or whatever. And in both cases, the crowds eat and are fully satisfied. Huge thousands and thousands of people eat from a small amount of food. And in both cases, large amounts of food are collected um, at the end. But the one huge difference, as we've said, is that for the 5,000, Jesus had been in Nazareth, this is Mark 6, and had gone into a desert place to escape the crowds. He's in Jewish territory. Now, prior to feeding the 4,000, we have the Syrophoenician woman story, who is in Tyre and Sidon, this area, which is a Gentile area. And Jesus then has headed halfway across Palestine, Israel, to the Decapolis, which is mainly modern Jordan, more or less, west of the Jordan River. He's again in Gentile territory. Check chapter 7, verse 31. He has fed a Jewish crowd. Now he feeds a crowd of dogs as far as his Jewish compatriots were concerned. And there's a shift. I think there's a huge shift that Mark wants us to understand. Now we miss it because this is 2,000 years later and we're not Jews, well, as far as I know, most, if not all people here, are not of a Jewish background. I think actually one person told me they were, but we're basically, we function as non-Jews, okay? And we're not really familiar with the geography of Palestine and the surrounding countries, especially as it was inhabited 2,000 years ago. So these things don't jump out to us. But for Mark and the original readers, these things jumped out, okay? Jesus was in southern Lebanon. He's left Israel. I'm putting the modern country names in, okay? He's messing around with, I don't know, Arab women or something in Lebanon, casting demons out, whatever. You know, this is not what his... Jewish compatriots thought well of. He then nips across the top of Israel. There's no account of them even stopping to get over the Jordan River into what is now the country of Jordan. Thousands and thousands and thousands of, let's say, Jordanians and Syrians, to use the modern terminology, have come out to see him bang next to Israel. 
there is a shift. There is something very new, very big happening. Because if you turn a page or so on in your Bible or flick or whatever you do on an app, Jesus is soon going to head to Jerusalem to die and be resurrected to bring salvation to the nations. Jesus really is getting the gospel, the good news of himself, out to the nations. I know I keep referring to the Syrophoenician woman, but she's the hero of the story for me. And although she was in last week's preach, I've had to kind of bring her in (laughs) to have a role model for us. Did Jesus really call her a dog? Well, he said dog, but was he just acting out the attitudes of the Jews? Was he making a point by using a horrible derogatory word, which he obviously didn't mean? Well, that's how I'm coming down on the issue. But after feeding 4,000, Jesus gets into a boat. He goes over to the district of Dalman Utha. He's now in a small town on the shores of the Sea of Galilee. He's back in Jewish territory. And what do we read? Verse 11. And the Pharisees came and began to argue with him demanding from him a sign from heaven in order to test him. Now, I think this is supposed to be funny, the way Mark's putting it, yeah? Jesus goes to the Gentiles. He's calling the nations to the God of Israel. This is what God said he would do all along. This is what God promised Abraham. And when he gets back, is there any, well done, Jesus, well done, Rabbi? No. They start arguing with him. Yeah? We want a miracle too. They want a sign. But now the story gets serious. Look at verse 12. And sighing deeply in his spirit, Jesus said, Why does this generation demand a sign? Truly I say, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. This is like his encounter with the scribes back in chapter 3. Jesus spoke clearly to the scribes, but Mark says, chapter 3, verse 23, and it's repeated in 4.11, that he spoke in parables. So how is it that Jesus can speak in plain, I'll say plain English, he didn't speak English, but how could he speak in plain Aramaic, yeah? And then Mark says he's speaking in parables, I think the point is they didn't get his plain teaching because of their hardness of heart. 
Now, Jesus was doing miracles continuously. Why hadn't the Pharisees seen one? Or had they seen miracles and they were dismissing them? I think it's hardness of heart. It doesn't matter what Jesus does, they have determined in their hearts not to believe. So doing miracles like kind of party tricks for entertainment, Jesus is not going to go there. Instead, Mark tells us he sighs deeply in his spirit. Jesus is in deep turmoil. What is happening here? This is something that Paul will struggle with later. In the, he, he writes about it in the book of Romans, chapters 9 to 11. The Jews would be hardened so that the good news would go out to the Gentiles. This is only for a season. But this saddened Jesus deeply. It saddened Paul. It takes us to that very difficult area where God permits bad things to happen. He even allowed his own people, Israel, to harden themselves for a purpose. The, the purpose was the salvation of the nations through the seed of Abraham, through the Son of God, through the Israelite, the one that doesn't call Gentiles dogs, the one that obeys God's law perfectly, the one that submits himself to his Father's will. But let's just remember also that many Jews did believe. The early church was overwhelmingly Jewish. The apostles were Jewish. It's just Jewish, Jewish, Jewish in the beginning. So yes, the Jews were hardened or are hardened for a time. It doesn't mean there are not Jewish Christians. It doesn't mean that God has forgotten his promises to his people. And it doesn't mean that there isn't going to be this bringing in of Israel in the future. At least that's how I understand Romans 9 to 11. But now, back in the boat, verse 13. Pharisees, forget it. In the boat, verse 14. And they had forgotten to take bread, except for one loaf. It's like, it's kind of like, here we go again. They did not have any with them in the boat. And after they had seen Jesus deeply troubled, it's like, oops, who forgot to bring the bread It's, it's, it's funny and it's tragic. And I know we always think, if I'd been there, I wouldn't have been like that. Like I'd have been the good one. 
But I, I think the point of these stories is to show us as human beings who are sinful the ways that we think. And so God is doing amazing things. Promises from centuries and centuries before are being rolled out before their eyes. And they're like, oh, it was your turn to bring the bread. You know, they're quibbling. Verse 15, and he ordered them saying, watch out, beware of the leaven. Leaven is yeast. The leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And Paul uses the same metaphor, 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Paul says, your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven works through the whole batch of dough? That's 1 Corinthians 5, 6. And I think the picture is, is that evil thinking spreads. Just as yeast spreads through the dough as it is needed. Yeah? So if we are taking in bad ways of thinking, we then kind of get needed by the troubles of life, whatever, and then these bad ways of thinking spread through us. In today's language, we probably wouldn't say um, yeast, perhaps virus works better. Yeah? Um, evil thinking is like a virus. It just spreads from person to person. And once we, get us, once we get it in us, it multiplies and it just takes over. Now, Jesus warns elsewhere about the leaven of the Pharisees and the scribes. But what is the leaven of Herod? Who's Herod? He, he comes up quite a bit in the Gospels. Now, he's the king of Judea. He's supposedly a Jew, but he's been put there by Rome. This is the Herod who ordered the killing of the baby boys in an attempt to kill the baby Jesus. Remember Pharaoh? He did the same thing. Killing the baby uh, boys of the Hebrew women. I think maybe it's beware of evil political orders. The Bible uses names like Babylon, Egypt, Rome to describe these evil political orders. Now, we're not rebels, we're Christians, but we keep thinking. And we don't take in evil from the system around us. 16, verse 16. And they began to discuss with one another that they had no bread. <laughs> Missed the point. And knowing this, he said to them, why are you discussing that you have no bread. Do you not yet perceive or understand? Have your hearts been hardened? They're unaware of Jesus' sorrow, 
Now, women will say that's a typical guy thing, so that's probably part of the reason. But I think sin comes in as well. You know, they're not in touch really with one another, are they? But they're utterly unaware of what Jesus is saying. And so in verse 18, he says, Although you have eyes, you do not see. Although you have ears, you do not hear and do not remember. And then he reminds them, the feeding of the multitudes. Why is bread an issue? Yeah, He has shown that he can feed thousands upon thousands of people from almost nothing. Why are they worrying about bread? Always remember, Luvius once said in a preach, I say you because it sounds, it works better, but of course I mean we. So when I say you, I'm including me, okay? Do you have eyes to see? Do you have ears to hear? Are you seeing and hearing what God is saying? Or are you thinking about food? You know, did your wife forget to buy the bread for the dinner today and you're knocked? One, you know, one of the things we have in our house is like brown rice versus white rice, you know. I don't like brown rice. I, I like prefer white rice, you know. Did you get white rice? You know, and something like this can just like absorb you. Doesn't matter what the Bible says, what God's been saying, whatever. We can just fill our greedy minds with desires just to fill our stomachs and give ourselves about two minutes satisfaction, you know, and then it's all over. But let's just let's just have a quick look at the last bit of the uh, well, the last bit we're looking at today, which is chapter eight, verses twenty-two to twenty-six, healing. A blind man. And they came to Bethsaida, this is verse 22, and they brought to him a blind man and implored him that he would touch him. And he took hold of the blind man's hand and led him outside the village. And after spitting in his eyes, he placed his hands on him and asked him, Do you see anything? And looking up, he said, I see people, for I see them like trees walking around. Then he placed his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes and was cured and could see everything clearly. And then he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even go into the village. Pastor Dave pointed out that there's some of the funny things Jesus does with kind of spitting and putting stuff in people's eyes and so on. It's almost certainly cultural because no one says, like, why are you doing that? These are things that people did to try to cure ailments. Jesus probably is doing what people did, but then he looks up to heaven and he prays. And it's effective. And it's a miracle. 
and a man who had never seen suddenly sees. To finish the most important bit, the so what, what can we take away from what we've read together this morning? Where are you, or who are you perhaps, in these stories? Are you the Syrophoenician woman, humbly trusting Jesus and your place in God's order? Are you like a scribe? Well, they were earlier, but I mentioned them today, so I'm, I'm getting them in again. Are you a scribe? Do you know your Bible well? And yet you're in danger of blaspheming the Holy Spirit. Are you one of those disciples who just doesn't learn? It doesn't matter what God says to you. You know, you're, you're bickering over a loaf of bread, either literally or metaphorically. Are you a Pharisee? Give us a miracle, Jesus. Do another miracle for us. But unable to see all that God is doing. Are you the blind man in the story? Do you realize that you need to see? Then cry out to Jesus, even right now. Who's the hero of this story? Well, I've kind of deliberately brought someone in from last week. After Jesus, it has to be the Syro-Phoenician woman. I think she is someone to go away and imitate. She's the hero. No complaining. Full of faith. Supposedly a dog, but transformed to be a child of God. And just the very last thing, we saw how Jesus mentioned beware of the leaven of the religious teachers and of the political order of Herod. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that culture is everything. I'm just going to quote from a scholar. His name is Van Hooser, and I'm giving you the reference because I don't want you to think, oh gosh, you know, that was really, really nice thing you said, Paul. This isn't me. This is a scholar, a Christian scholar. He says, culture is the software that determines how things function and how people relate in a given society. You know, I'm one of those people, I'm always saying, oh, it's culture, it's culture. You know, someone says in church, such and such a person didn't say thank you, or such and such a person did or didn't do something else. And I'm always saying, well, it's cultural. You know, you can't expect a Cypriot, you can't expect 
uh, a Cameroonian or you can't expect an English person to do whatever. You know, it's not in their culture. But we've got to examine our culture. We've got to examine those thoughts, those teachings that we have picked up from our culture. It works in two ways, as I've read. We pick up ideas from our parents. These spread from generation to generation. So much of what you are is your upbringing, and that's not a bad thing. And the other huge bit of who you are is what you're picking up from around you. And I'm not saying I've, I've escaped this completely, but there's these addictive apps nowadays. And you go on your phone, it's all these short videos now, and you flick, 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 and you get exposed to idea after idea after idea. We are exposed to little teaching after little teaching, hundreds, thousands of these things, literally all day long. The Bible gives us a way to escape our culture. The Syrophoenician woman must have been culturally programmed to hate Jews. Ditto the Jews regarding the Gentile dogs. And yet this woman was able to seize onto something much greater than her culture. Much greater than the programming, the software of her culture, which would have just left her with a demon-possessed daughter and without hope. And it's very simple. What did the woman seize onto? Jesus. So we don't need to overthink the issue, but whoever you are, whatever you, you know, whatever you are, wherever you're from, whatever life has thrown at you, whatever mistakes you've made, however perhaps concerned you are about the way you think and your decisions and so on, there is a way out, and that is to seize onto Jesus. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you for that faith of that Greek, Syro-Phoenician, Canaanite woman. We thank you that she did not become a victim of the attitudes of her own culture or the people around her. And we thank you for those multitudes. We don't know their names. But even those Gentiles just went out to see this Jewish rabbi and what he had to say. And we thank you that Jesus, in this point in the story, is now setting his eyes on that journey to Jerusalem to die and to suffer 
not just for his people, but for the nations. Amen.